the seasons are changing here in the capital region. School is back in full swing. Election season is ramping up. The air's getting cooler with every passing day. But things are heating up in the Times Union newsroom. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. Troy currently has a homicide rate on a per capita basis that is higher than that of Chicago right now. I'm terrified I'm gonna wait till the time you wanna buy. This has to stop. We'll take a look at the city of Saratoga Springs and its reckoning with racial justice. People calling me saying, what the hell is going on in our city? We'll go back in time to the Prohibition-era heyday of notorious gangster Legs Diamond. And then he was moving into the bootlegging business in Greene County. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast... Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union editor, Casey Seiler. We're gonna start off with a little bit of distressing news. The week started off with a drive-by shooting, an 11-year-old boy died. Uh, Casey, what's the latest on that investigation? Yeah, this is the death of Ashawn Davis, who lived in Lansingburg, but he was staying with um, family friends kind of on the north side of Troy. He was hit in the head by a bullet that was fired from a vehicle late Sunday night. And obviously, any, any death due to gun violence is, uh, is tragic. But the death of this uh, 11-year-old who was just about to you know, virtually begin sixth grade has hit the city very hard and has, I think it's fair to say, brought on something of a reckoning. Troy currently has a homicide rate on a per capita basis that is higher than that of Chicago right now. It has been an especially bloody summer in Albany as well. Authorities obviously are uh, doing everything they can. They say they have video, they've been collecting video evidence of the car as it made its way through Troy after the shooting. There are both federal and county rewards being offered for information. It's a terrible situation. And Ken Crow and Masara Makati were in the neighborhood on Monday talking to people who were just, you know, polaxed with grief. People with, with kids themselves who talked about how they have serious concerns about, uh, about letting their kids out to play. Where's the next bullet going to be coming from and, and where's it going to be going? I'm terrified I'm going to wait till the time you want to buy. What the hell? This has to stop. And all you officials, get up, get the fuck up. Adjust the community. You cannot adjust the community that you ignore. You cannot. You cannot. It's insane. Mm, That's an emotionally difficult story to report for sure. 
you can read more about it on timesunion.com. Uh, moving on to our topic, uh, local school districts last week were having some issues with budget withholdings from the state. However, the state budget director, Robert Mujica, wrote an op-ed to the Times Union this week, firing back at them. So can you describe what happened there? Yeah, so uh, the budget division in July told local governments and school districts that uh, 20% of regular state aid was going to be withheld. And that, of course, forced has forced local governments and, of course, has forced school districts to begin planning as if they are not going to get 20% going forward. Although it is being withheld, it's being withheld in the hopes that there will be some kind of federal bailout of, of some size coming to assist school districts and assist local governments. That is not forthcoming as of this point. Congress appears to be um, deadlocked. And so districts have had to move forward with fairly draconian plans to cut staff, to prune back programs wholesale. So the budget director, Robert Mujica, speaking for the Cuomo administration, of course, recognizes that this is certainly not a good thing. And parents are, are starting to get furious, as, of course, school administrators are. And Mujica made a statement that, whoa, 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 we haven't cut 20%. We've only held back, uh, you know, a couple million dollars from, from districts here and there. And that's true. In other words, they have only started withholding these funds. But districts, of course, are behaving as if, because they have to, there's no certainty about whether or not that 20% is ever going to get restored. Certainly, there's no certainty about whether or not they're going to be held harmless, as it were, and that they'll get the money that they've been missing out on over the course of the last couple of weeks. Now, state aid is not necessarily a huge, huge part of the budget for many kind of well-to-do suburban school districts, but in districts like Albany and Schenectady, it's a lot of the budget, and a 20% cut is an enormous amount of money. That is why this has caused such grief and anxiety among uh, district officials. And what the, what the administration is saying now is that that 20% cut or those, the withholdings will be dealt with according to a district or a, or a local government's needs. So clearly they, they recognize that a, the idea of kind of a one size fits all cut is going to be a political arsenic. <laughs> so, uh, it, but it's, it's yet another indication that the upcoming couple of months and certainly next year's legislative session is going to be extremely painful. The budget negotiation is going to be um, is going to be a tough one. I want to throw to our sister podcast here. It seems like a good segue to our Capcom podcast. Uh, you can go and find that on any podcast app of your choice, and I'm sure we will have lots to come on Capcom this coming year. But also, before we leave the state, I also wanted to mention that Governor Andrew Cuomo made a bit of news this week uh, with regard to an upcoming favorite holiday of mine, anyhow, Halloween. Is trick-or-treating canceled, Casey? What's happening? The Grinch might have stolen Christmas, but Cuomo will not, at least not at this point, be, um, be canceling Halloween. I would not ban trick-or-treaters going door-to-door. I don't think that's appropriate. He um, made it clear that at least based on the current situation, he has no plans to issue an executive order banning uh, trick-or-treating. It's good news for children and uh, dentists who need work everywhere, I guess. I'll give you my 
advice and guidance, and then you'll make the decision what you do that night. I've seen a lot of like uh, mechanisms that people have developed for distributing candy hands-free. So maybe we'll see some of those uh, coming up next month. Yeah, like the the slot, basically a, a pipeline, sort of yes. down your uh, down your porch, as it were. Yes, I'm already scouring my house for for materials to put something like that together. But it's true. I mean, think of all the touch points involved in. I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of people coming to the door saying, "Ooh, what a scary costume! Wearing a mask." as well they should, and probably wearing gloves as they distribute candy, that's smart, right? And probably if you're sending your kids out, I mean, hey, there's nothing wrong with a heart surgeon, uh, you know, costume. It, it, uh, it involves a mask already, so. Right, it doesn't take much of an adjustment, so we'll see. Okay. It will be an exciting year for Halloween. Moving over across the river to Rensselaer County, the former Rensselaer County DA, Joel Abelov, is on trial this week. Can you just go over the situation there? What's happened this week? Joel Abelove faces a felony perjury charge as well as charges of official misconduct related to his handling of the aftermath of the shooting death at the hands of a police officer of Edson Thevenin, who was a motorist who in uh, 2016 was stopped for a DUI stop. He fled the scene, basically drove away and ended up shot several times by a Troy police sergeant who has earlier this year passed away from, uh, from COVID-19. Joel Abelove, the former Rensselaer County District Attorney, sped the case before a grand jury within just five days after the, um, the incident occurred. The investigation had not yet been completed. His service revolver had not even been handed over and examined as an investigator uh, testified at Abelove's trial. Abelove uh, was brought up on charges by the state attorney general's office. Uh, those charges were dismissed by Judge Jonathan Nichols, who concluded that the AG's office had exceeded its jurisdiction in bringing those charges. It went to the appellate division. The appellate division uh, reversed that decision. The Court of Appeals decided they uh, weren't going to challenge that. So it came back to Judge Nichols. In other words, the judge who dismissed the case is now serving essentially as the jury in what's called a bench trial, where essentially there's no jury, the judge is going to be the person to decide. You can understand, of course, why Mr. Abelove and his defense attorneys uh, probably would have opted to have Judge Nichols hear the case. Interesting story. We'll be following that. Rob Gavin is covering that, right? Rob has been in the courtroom for the first two days. Gotcha. And finally, before we let you go, uh, we have some exciting stuff here at the Times Union this week. I'll let you spill the beans. Jess, as you might or might not know, when I arrived at the Times Union, I was the entertainment editor. And the biggest, my biggest job of the year was putting together the uh, best of the Capital Region issue. So I always feel a certain frisson, I believe is the French word, of excitement whenever I think about best of. This year's best of is out came out in Thursday's paper, a beautiful 60-page section put together by, uh, by Gary Hahn and Jeff Boyer and Sarah Tracy, a beautiful product, a celebration of the best the region has to offer. It looks great, and it's only been delayed by about four months due to the pandemic because, of course, we saw kind of no need to put it out back in May when so many of the great businesses were, uh, that are businesses and restaurants and what have you that are featured in there were pretty much shut down. So it feels not quite normal, but a little bit closer to normal. 
and very exciting. You can read more about it on timesunion.com. Casey, thanks so much for joining us. We will check back in with you next week. Yes, good talking to you. The city of Saratoga Springs is home to about 29,000 residents. 92% of those residents are white. However, like many communities across the nation, the historic resort destination is facing a reckoning with racial discrimination and injustice in the wake of police killings of black people. And as reporter Wendy Liberator recently reported, the call for an examination of the city's own issues with systemic racism has grown louder in recent years. In particular, following the death of Daryl Mount, a young man who died during a police chase in 2013. What kind of led you to write this story? Where did your reporting lead you? I've been thinking about this for a long time, only because, first of all, the Daryl Mount issue. Daryl Mount was the young man that died in 2014 after he was pursued by police in 2013. Police said that um, he fell off a scaffold during a foot chase in an alleyway and that they discovered him in this alleyway unresponsive. Of course, his mother, Daryl Mount's mother, uh, Daryl Mount was only 22 when he died. Uh, He's a biracial man, uh, believes that the police actually beat him to death because his skull was crushed in on one side. So that's always sort of been in the back of my mind. And at various protests through the years in Saratoga, people would bring this up and many people of color would say, Saratoga Springs police are constantly stopping us for no reason and asking for our ID. I have heard that story, I don't know how many times. We're stopped either walking down the street and required to show our ID, or we're stopped by police and required to show our ID. And then of course, George Floyd happened, protests exploded. And I would say, aside from the Albany protest, Saratoga's on July 31st was pretty horrible. I mean, I wasn't there. It was a Thursday night. That's not my typical night to work, so I didn't go. But my phone started blowing up at around 8.30. People calling me saying, what the hell is going on in our city? We're children, you know, these are young people, um, you know, teens and 20s. Three teenagers were arrested. Uh, are being shot with pepper spray. People at first thought it was tear gas. And, uh, you know, people thought it was just all sorts of horribleness happening. And it, and it was pretty bad because there were tons of cops there. You know, I, I was watching this uh, live over Facebook. Of course, you know, I immediately called Susan and, you know, I was like, somebody's got to get over there. You know, so uh, by the time she got over there, because she lives in the area, it was it was pretty much dispersed. Mm -hmm. Um, So after that, I said, I have to write about this because this is just, there was no need to shoot these people. Based on what you saw, right? There was no, you know, there was- Nobody was, although the police said um, somebody threw a water bottle at them, but no, and there was a lot of shouting. 
A lot of emotion, I would imagine. Right. So, so you talk in your story a lot about the history of Saratoga Springs. And, you know, now nowadays Saratoga Springs is 92% white. That was the yes. um, statistic that you, you posted. But there have been Black families that have been living in Saratoga for centuries. And you yes. kind of go back and talk about them. So can you, can you kind of talk about that line of reporting and kind of how you, or how you told the story? Well, the first person I went to was Carol Daggs because the Daggs family has been in Saratoga Springs for generations and generations. And I knew she wrote a book recently about her family in Saratoga. And of course, she was one of the people after talking to her that I learned was being harassed uh, by a neighbor, you know, going back and forth in front of her house uh, with a Confederate flag on his truck, screaming the N-word at her. Yes, yeah, she, she told me basically in the southern end of the city, her family was farmers. They would sell eggs and raise crops. But many of the black people came to Saratoga as slaves to the visiting aristocrats, southern aristocrats that would come up there for the waters and later on the track. I mean, Saratoga got its start with its spa waters that was thought to be healing so um they came up stayed at these luxury hotels and their slaves would come with them and nobody really seemed to have a problem with that also when the track opened many many of the jockeys were black at that point i'm not sure why but they were so they they have a pretty rich history in saratoga once the Civil War came, you know, until the Civil War was over, they still brought up their slaves and people were pretty tolerant of it. Although it did get a little tense at times because it was also a meeting spot for abolitionists and uh, suffragettes, including Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, who both spoke in Saratoga Springs. Yeah, so that certainly touches on some very big historical uh, elements and American yeah. elements of American history. And also, of course, you know, a couple of years ago when 12 Years a Slave, you know, won the Oscar, it, you know, definitely highlighted the fact that um, Solomon Northup. Actually, he lived up in Fort Edward. He worked in Saratoga. Saratoga likes to say he was a Saratoga resident, but he lived in Fort Edward, but he worked all the time in Saratoga. Saratoga mm -hmm. was his bread and butter. Ah, that's right. And that's then you said he was lured away. He was lured yes. to Washington, right? Yes. First he was lured to New York and said, you, you know, we, you're, what, your plane is so wonderful, come to New York City. And then once he did his gig down there, the same guy said, your plane is so wonderful, let's go to Washington, D.C. They, they built up a little trust with him before he uh, ended up in D.C. And when he woke up in D.C., he was in a cage. Oh gosh, that's a powerful story. Now, sort of fast forwarding back to the present here and what's going on in Saratoga, you also write a little bit about, you know, the fact that city administration, the city council doesn't have any people of color on it. And, you know, the city officials are kind of, uh, people say they're not really addressing the issues. Yeah, they like to be like many people in Saratoga Springs saying, everything is wonderful. This is the best city in the state. There is nothing wrong with Saratoga Springs. And therefore, they're reluctant to get into the issue. They're kind of in denial, I would say. But they're dipping their toe into it. 
because they have to basically because the governor is saying you have to have a police reform task force which the mayor did form so they're they're moving into they're they're talking about the statistics uh how the number of black people who are arrested is higher than who lives there you know it's two percent live there but uh 20% are arrested, and these are just based on residents. Sure. Same with use of force, that a lot of the use of force is applied to Black people. So they are starting to dip their toe into it. But you could tell that, that many of the Black people don't feel this is, that anything's going to change or that it's gonna, they're going to be taken seriously because the fir their first effort, which I didn't add into the story, was a community conversation with the police chief and Robin Dalton, who's the commissioner of public safety. And there was so much yelling and screaming from the people in the audience at the chief and the commissioner of public safety. It was pretty horrible. And they're finally getting a voice and they are angry, rightly so. And it's shocking to the white population. They can't believe they're even angry, you know, because again, Saratoga is so wonderful. Going forward, what are you going to look at? I'm really interested to see what this task force comes up with. Because initially, the chair of the task force was the city attorney. And after much badgering from the public who attended the meetings, he stepped down. And so it's pretty much just citizens that are on this committee now, except for the chief. And these citizens mostly whom are black are making the recommendations and it's not going to be filtered through the city attorney. So I think that's a positive. I'd also think a civilian review board eventually down the road would be really important for them to have, but the commissioner of public safety, Robin Dalton said, there's no way that's going to happen. That's a non-starter. We don't want civilian oversight of the police. She says she's the civilian oversight and that's enough. Thank you so much for joining me this week and we'll look forward to your future reporting on this topic. All right, thank you, Jessica. After the break, we're time traveling to the Prohibition era. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Some say notorious Prohibition-era gangster Legs Diamond got his nickname from his uncanny ability to outrun trouble. But trouble eventually caught up with him in 1931, when he was gunned down in a boarding house on Dove Street in Albany. He was there celebrating his acquittal on kidnapping charges in Troy. But for all his notoriety, all the books and the movies and the popular culture surrounding him, he had very little in the way of a paper trail on his criminal record. That is, until recently. Reporter Ken Crow obtained a stash of documents that time forgot in the Rensselaer County Clerk's Office. And they reveal some interesting tidbits about the bootleggers' final escapades upstate. First of all, can you tell me who is Legs Diamond and why is he famous? John T. Jack 
Legs Diamond, who also had several other aliases, was famous for bootlegging, surviving three out of the four attempts to assassinate him, and also as a strong arm from 1914 until his death in 1931 in a Dove Street boarding house in Albany, which uh, Bill Kennedy, who wrote a book called Legs, based on Legs Diamond, later bought and wrote from there. I wonder if he ran into his ghost. I don't know what if Bill did or not. I know from talking to Brian Keogh at, at UAlbany, an archivist who reviewed Bill Kennedy's uh, archives on uh, Legs Diamond, that uh, Bill did not have access to the um, materials that the Times Union wrote about recently, pulling out the court records from uh, the Rensselaer County Clerk's Office, which very well may have sat in there untouched since 1931. Now that's interesting. So let's go, let's go down that road. You recently wrote a story about some documents that were kind of unearthed after many, many years, and you said William Kennedy didn't have access to them. What, what has come to light recently? I walked into the Rensselaer County Courthouse and talked to the court clerk and I said, Rich, his name is Rich Riley. I said, Rich, do you have any files from the uh, Legs Diamond trial? Because that's probably the most famous trial in county history. And he said, no, we don't. You'd have to try the county clerk. So I went over to the county clerk's records office and I spoke to them and they said, yeah, we think we have something, but we don't know where they are. So that was over a year ago. It took a year to find them because they've been moving their archive materials around. And they would always say, we haven't found them yet, but we're close. And I would say, okay, you know, it's just patience. And it was just because I asked, because it, it dawned on me that maybe I'd get lucky and there'd be a trial transcript, but there wasn't probably because Lady Diamond died the night he was celebrating his acquittal earlier in the day. And what they had was just the very preliminary, the indictment, but it, gave some interesting things like his criminal record, which is available elsewhere, but it also had the results of his court-martial and his being his sentence being uh, commuted by, uh, I guess, President Wilson, which would explain why he was back out on the street so quickly, because he was supposed to be doing five years of hard labor at Fort Leavenworth, which is notorious as a military prison. That's a lot of really rich history. Now, what kind of inspired you to pursue, you know, to walk into the, the county clerk's office and, and, and start along this, this line of reporting? Like, what inspired you to do that? Just because it's, you know, people talk about it. It's the most famous trial. People talk about it. And you'd be amazed how many people in this area have some sort of tie to Legs Diamond. Like the story I wrote, a woman by the name of Karen Nash wrote to describe how a relative of hers had a business in Greene County that did transactions with Legs Diamond. And I too personally have a connection, believe it or not. My grandmother grew up outside of New Haven and her favorite sister, her oldest sister, Sophie, was married to a guy in the mob in Connecticut and they ran a roadhouse in Meriden. And my grandmother came into the roadhouse one time, as she often did, and saw one of her best friends, girlfriends growing up sitting with this guy. And she went over to say hello and Sophie grabbed her and pulled her away and said, no, this wouldn't be a good time. And my grandmother said, it turned out the guy was Legs Diamond and her girlfriend was his local girlfriend. You know, that's our family lore from my grandmother, which she had a lot of tales and they were all true. That's incredible. My goodness. What was the most interesting thing 
that you found in this you know, current line of reporting? A couple of things. John J. Bennett Jr., who was the attorney general who was assigned by then Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt to uh, go after Clegg Diamond, he had only been in office that January. He was a newly elected AG. What also was interesting was the uh, statements given by the two troopers who guarded him at it was either Albany General or Albany Municipal Hospitals, probably was really the forerunner of Albany Medical Center. And they talked about how Dan Pryor, Daniel Pryor, uh, Legs Diamond's attorney, would come in and whisper for hours on end so that the troopers couldn't hear him because the troopers were there trying to listen in. The description of the um, setting at the Greene County Jail where he was held, so it wasn't so bad. And it was very typical. He had his meals brought in. Now, Meyer Lansky, who only did jail time or prison time in one jail in the country, that was the Saratoga County Jail for gambling, he used to have his meals brought in. You know, that was just, if you had money and influence, I guess you, got to, you didn't have to eat jail food. Then also the Albany County Hall of Records, just their police scrapbooks were fascinating because they had all the old times union articles cut out and pasted as it was occurring the investigations afterwards i know we we took a picture of the picture it showed a picture of legs diamond where every shot was fired into him that was quite interesting and i think this one thing that happened from this story is that lieutenant schleckert at the albany pd detective lieutenant i spoke to him and he's been trying to find out what happened to the police department's file on legs diamond and I was contacted by someone Sunday who said, can you get me in contact with the lieutenant? Because I may know what had happened to them. So I put them in touch and they're supposedly talking. So, so who knows? Maybe the file will resurface. Those are the impact of journalism. Making it happen so that, you know, the next time you'll have something else to report, uh, it'll, be, it'll be another big leap forward. That's so exciting. But, you know, and also the court martial papers, it was the decision of the court-martial to see that is always fascinating because that goes back to World War I. And Legs Diamond was actually a volunteer in the Coast Artillery, but he didn't make it overseas because he, he deserted and spent his time in New York City. He was originally from Philadelphia, but he had been living in Brooklyn. How did he end up up here? He was recuperating from being shot at the Monticello Hotel down in uh, New York City. And then he was moving into the bootlegging business in Greene County and taking control of there. And that you gotta remember that Greene County, even back then was filled with um, resorts. That's why FDR had ordered the attorney general to prosecute him because they were getting a lot of complaints because his people would be stopping trucks on the road claiming that they were ruining his business to waylay them. And that's what led to the charges because he had attacked someone. He and his henchmen had attacked two men and kidnapped one. And that's what ended up with the charges and they were transferred to um, Rensselaer County Court because they felt they couldn't get a fair trial in Greene County. Are you going to continue reporting on this? Are you going to are you going to go forward with with more stuff about Legs Diamond? Well, hopefully, maybe a story on the uh, file and the continuing hunt for that. Doing a historic piece like that, if you're looking at original documents, is time consuming. You know, in the Times Union, as Casey Seidler, the editor of the paper, said he thinks those are great stories for us to pursue. And I guess I'll go back to Bill. We started with Bill Kennedy. Let's go back to Bill Kennedy. After he won the Pulitzer Prize, and I'll date myself, this is back in, I guess it was 84, he gave a talk at the Egg 
down at Empire State Plaza, and he said, it's very important for local newspapers to write about an area's history so that the uh, residents, the readers, know what happened because it, it's important in understanding what's occurring now and what came before. And particularly an area as old as Albany with so many different aspects of history from you know the bootlegging of the roaring 20s to uh, the Dutch and Native American history. This was the, the turning point of the revolution up in Saratoga. Uncle Sam came from here and so it's a, a very rich history and where we have a lot of depth and there are things you can pull out and talk about. And the paper is interested in that. So, you know, they, different reporters do it at different times and uh, they always seem to be very well read stories. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me in just two days in person to say things and also the emails I've received. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. 